Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the November 12th, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. This week's impeachment proceedings are a direct result of the 2018 general election voter turnout. For today's program, activist conservationist and author Terry Tempest Williams has just published her latest book, Erosion, Essays of Undoing, a book for these times with her inestimably careful attention to the health and souls of all beasts, including us. We'll devote the full hour to her. And so we'll take a station break and cue her up in just a moment. Thanks for staying tuned. Welcome back to the show. My guest for the full hour is author of books, poems, essays, climate warriorette, educator, and societal validator, Terry Tempest Williams. She has a brand new book out entitled Erosion, Essays of Undoing, published by Sarah Creighton Books, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Terry's teaching career began at Montezuma Creek, Utah, on the Navajo Reservation, Cardin School. It became known later as the Cardin Memorial School, and she was later a scholar at the University of Utah's Annie Clark Tanner Scholar and Graduate Program of Environmental Humanities. Her current roles are as writer-in-residence at the Harvard Divinity School, Planetary Health Alliance, and the Center for the Study of World Religions, and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters. She was recently a Montgomery Fellow at Dartmouth College. Terry's books include, and I'm going to name them all if I can, uh, in deference to the loyal listeners, including a few that I think are sitting down to pizza over at Columbia University. I'll give them a shout out there. We'll list as many of the books as I can. The Secret Language of Snow, Between Cattails, Pieces of White Shell, Coyote's Canyon, Earthly Messengers, Refuge, An Unnatural History of Family and Place, An Unspoken Hunger, Stories from the Field, Desert Quartet, An Erotics of Place, Leap, Red Passion and Patience in the Desert, The Open Space of Democracy, Finding Beauty in a Broken World, When Women Were Birds, The Hour of Land, A Personal Topography of Americans' National Parks. Along with this prodigious list of books she's written are the awards and fellowships she's garnered nationally and internationally. Terry, which ones do you treasure the most? Well, Claudia, I'm just honored to be on your show, honestly. <laughs> um, this means the world to me. I was born in California. Um, my father was in the Air Force. At March Air Force Base in Riverside, California. I was born in Corona. And so to be able to be with you in this audience um, means a great deal to me. Well, then I, there are a lot of, believe me, folks, you can imagine from all these books, there's a lot of awards. And I'm still going to include in your callings also include the co-founding of and the closing. It was closed. The Tempest Exploration Company, LLC. She's an, was an earthist officiant, expert offering testimony before Congress. And I must say, a sister to family and a much broader society. Terry graduated from the University of Utah with a major in English and a minor in biology, and her Master's of Science in Environmental Education. She comes to us today from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Terry Tempest Williams. Thank you, Claudia. I'm just so happy to be with you, Thank you. for this hour. Thank you so much. Well, we met at last April's Los Angeles Times Book Festival, and at that Venue, you took such care with everyone in the book signing line. It was apparent that beside your written experience, to share, you share a good deal of yourself with others. It, there was, I think you let everybody who had a grief story pair with your grief story, but we'll, we'll open up possibly that later. But I want to say, Terry, and to listeners, to read Erosion is to take in MFK Fisher, Rachel Carson, Joan Didion, 
and Karen Armstrong all at once. Well, thank you. Um, I love all those writers, and, you know, I think um, we're the sum of what we read, right? So I think, you know, each of those writers have, have had an impact on me. And, you know, I, Erosion has been a rough book. Uh, it's, you know, I think we're in a very difficult time. And in writing this, Claudia, I felt like in many ways I was writing to the future, um, I wanted those who are coming after us to know there was a large community of people who care and cared and who saw what was coming. And in many ways, this is um, a very raw book and an honest book in ways that um, I just felt like, what am I trying to say? This book is unadorned. Well... So I, I want to also mention while we speak of this that uh, there are many people who've weighed in about your book. One that, I, I, among others, that really resonated with me is journalist Timothy Egan's claim about your book that if John Muir ever wrote this, if he ever wrote like this, most of the West would be wilderness protection by now. And I'd, I'd say that if you were one of the apostles, there might be, there would have this, there wouldn't have been room for Calvinism. <laughs> Well, I, I can assure you there are many people in Utah that would disagree with you. Well, we're going to go to them. We're going to go to them later on. <laughs> we're talking about where, where you're inviting mm -hmm. an, an action to be taken. So as you open, we are at the moment of strange juxtapositions. What particular developments, Terry, were the impetus to write erosion? Such a great question. I live in an erosional landscape, and if you and I were sitting having a cup of tea right now mm -hmm. on our porch in Castle Valley, Utah, um, I would give you these cardinal directions. If we were looking south, which would be ahead, um, you would see the LaSalle Mountains now covered um, with a skiff of snow, and most of the, the gold is off of the aspen trees. These are mountains that... It, rise 12,000 feet above sea level. To the north behind us is the Colorado River running red, carrying the sediments of, of the desert downriver. Um, to the west, which catches the last uh, light of day, is Porcupine Rim. And to the east, where the rising sun presents itself each morning, is Castleton Tower and the priest and nuns. Castleton Tower is a 400-foot freestanding tower uh, of Wingate Sandstone, and it really presides over the valley. Um, so I think, you know, to belong to an erosional landscape, to see the effects of wind, water, and time on the landscape, you know, you can't help but think about what ways am I eroding to? And and that led me to think about the erosion of democracy, the erosion of science, the erosion of decency, um, even the erosion of self, the erosion of the body, and to think about it not only in terms of physical terms, but metaphorical terms and political and spiritual terms. And you actually develop in your book, when you talk about downwinders, and I, I, Utah is a a leading sort of case in this point, but there certainly are downwinders in other areas, but where people were exposed to a lot of toxic radiation uh, from research and detonation there, and that, that took also members of your own family. So that sort of, that, that was sort of the beginning of the eroding that sort of then your book moves into where more of these processes are underway, I was, was noting. So you do talk about your family as, as being their markers for what's happened to anyone downwind of toxic activities. No question. Half of my family has been affected by cancer. Um, more than half are dead. And it's, it's sobering. But I'm also aware, Claudia, of, you know, denial is always to be underestimated. Um, and this, this became very clear to me when a friend of mine, Fuzzle Sheikh, who 
is a brilliant photographer. He lives in uh, Switzerland. He is American. He is of Muslim descent. But after September 11th, he really didn't feel safe here and left. And he's been photographing conflict zones all over the world. Oh, my goodness. From uh, Palestine to Israel to Rwanda to Afghanistan. And over a cup of coffee a couple of years ago, I said, why don't you come home? And he looked stunned. And we didn't know each other that well. And I feared I had taken a liberty I shouldn't have taken. And I just said, you know, right here in our own home ground is a conflict zone. Why don't you come to Utah? And he looked like I was half mad. And the breakfast ended. About three months later, the phone rang. I picked it up, and he said, damn you. And honestly, I thought it was one of our neighbors. <laughs> um, it, it was Fuzzle, and he said, can I come? And I just got off the phone with him. You know, he is in Indian country. He's in the Four Corners photographing. He's been here on and off for two years. And he was the one that really pointed out my own sense of denial. And I would have told you that I was awake, alert, and alive to my own home ground in the state of Utah and the American West and Southwest. But after he had been doing aerial flights for about four months, he called me and he said, Terry, I have been all over the world, but I have never been to a more violent place than this. At the Four Corners. And I was... I was stunned, yes, in specifically Utah. And I heard myself getting defensive, and then I realized, no, he has touched something that I haven't wanted to face. And that really became um, the essay, Boom. And may I read just a minute of that oh, so that please the readers do. get a sense? So this is the beginning. What is beauty if not stillness? What is stillness if not sight? What is sight, if not an awakening? What is an awakening, if not now? The American landscape is under assault by an administration that cares only about themselves. Working behind closed doors, they are strategically undermining environmental protections that have been placed for decades and getting away with it. In practices of secrecy, in deeds of greed, in acts of violence that are causing pain. Like many... I have compartmentalized my state of mind in order to survive. Like most, I have also compartmentalized my state of Utah. It is a violence hidden that we all share. This is the fallout that has entered our bodies, nuclear bombs tested in the desert. Boom. These are uranium tailings left on the edges of our towns where children play. Boom. The war games played and nerve gas stored in the West Desert. Boom. These are the oil and gas lines, frack lines, from Vernal to Bonanza in the Uinta Basin. Boom. This is Aneth and Montezuma Creek, the oil patches on Indian lands. Boom. Gut Bears Ears. Boom. Cut Grand Stace Staircase Escalante National Monument in half. Boom. And every other wild place that is easier for me to defend than my own people and species. Boom. The coal and copper mines I watched expand as a child. Huntington and Kennecott. Boom. The oil refineries that foul the air and blacken our lungs in Salt Lake City. Boom. And the latest scar on the landscape, the tar sands mine in the Brooklyn, closed, now hidden, simply by its remoteness. Boom. Add the Cisco Desert, where trains stop to settle the radioactive waste they carry on to Blanding. Boom. Move the uranium tailings from Moab to Crescent Junction, then bury it still hot in the alkaline desert. Out of sight, out of mind. Boom. See the traces of human indignities on the sands near Topaz Mountain, left by the Japanese internment camps. Boom. Utah is a beautiful violence. Boom. Letting that sink so in I think everybody. That was a response, you know, to Fuzzle. Um, and again, another example of erosion, of, of really losing the capacity to even see the place where you live because it becomes normalized. Um, so I think that's another example of, of how this book changed me in the writing of it. Thank you. For those of you who've just joined us, 
It's my pleasure and honor to have my guest today, award-winning author, educator, and advocate, Terry Tempest-Williams, and we're talking about her latest book, Erosion, Essays of Undoing, and where she's meld her, her deeply rooted spirituality with the physical world, which you have seen in evidence of her read. And she's continuing on her book tour, and uh, we'll talk about how to follow her later. So... Um, I, I have broken down, we'll, we'll sort of bring people full circle with what's going on with the Department of Interior at a little bit later on here, but I, I want to continue working with the elements actually in the book. And uh, you, it's, uh, I want to say erosion is a manual on listening. Many a conversation takes me to tell of your, your t- tell of listening to the sequoias. Mm. Um, I think that that is such an astute comment, Claudia, about listening, um, because I've always felt that if we listen to the land, we will know what to do. And this is a story that touched me so deeply when I was in uh, Yosemite National Park for the centennial of the National Park Service. It was in 2016. I met an incredible biologist named Sue Beatty, Beatty. And she was part of a team that was really looking at the notion of rejuvenation and restoration. How this came about was fascinating, and I'm going to tell it in my words. Sue Beatty is a very modest woman, yeah. but and she might disagree, but, you know, I asked her, how did this restoration process occur in the Mariposa Grove? And as you know, um, President Abraham Lincoln in 1864 created the Yosemite Land Act, which was the first time that lands had been set aside um, for protection in a public manner. We also know there's a shadow side of this, that before we had public lands, they were Indian lands. Nevertheless, here was a war-torn president who saw these beautiful manifestations on the the land of Yosemite, El Capitan, um, Half Dome, and the Mariposa Grove, the big trees, the giant sequoias. And he thought, you know, perhaps this will become a point of healing for a divided nation. And I would argue it still is a point of healing for a divided nation. So the Mariposa Grove, um, every week or so, Sue Beatty, the lead biologist, would walk through just for her own peace of mind. But there was one moment where as she was walking through, she felt a disturbance, and she couldn't quite identify it. She looked around, and in her heart, these are my words, she heard the trees speaking to her on some level as a scientist. We are suffering. We are dying. Can you hear us? We are suffering. We are dying. Can you hear us? And she took note of that, and she saw that this was a forest in drought. She saw that the waterways maybe weren't as full as one would hope. And the next weekend when she got back to work, she addressed her team and said, "Um, I think we need to do a complete assessment of the Mariposa Grove. They seem under stress. And they had a good conversation. They said, well, we're in drought. You know, there's been fires. She said, no, no, I think it's deeper than that. After a thorough rendering, biologically, ecologically, with the hydrology, et cetera, they noted that, in fact, they were stressed. But it was deeper than that. What they found is that after 100 years plus, millions of tourists visiting the Mariposa Grove, their roots were being crushed. The xylem and phloem couldn't really function in the way, and they were suffocating. And they made recommendations that what should happen is that this grove should have rest. And with an agreement from the superintendent and the National Park Service, for four years the Mariposa Grove was closed. What they did was remove miles of asphalt that was bearing down on the roots. No more trampling of tourists. They removed the parking lots. They removed the trams. No longer would the Mariposa Grove be a place of recreation. 
and entertainment, but rather transformed into a place of reverence and restoration. Now, when people go to the Mariposa Grove, it is quiet. You don't hear the motors of the trolley. You don't have the concessions nearby. There are no cars. There is no asphalt. Instead, you hear the stillness with a very small sign that says, can you hear the trees speaking? It's there? The sign is there? Because I haven't been there since I think this was remanaged here. So, you know, I think this this is an act of listening. Yes. And... When I was there with Sue Beatty, I was thinking of this this morning, actually, Claudia. You know, when I stood before the the giant tree, I think it's called the grizzly, um, the giant, the grizzly giant. Um, it was dawn, and I remember putting my hands on the trunk of that tree, and what I heard in my heart was, "Hold the ground, hold the ground, hold the ground." And when you read stories like The Overstory by Richard Powers or, you know, The Life of Trees, we now know trees do communicate with one another below ground, above ground. And I think we're just beginning to learn how to listen to trees, to plants, to appreciate the mycelium that holds the soil together, that literally does hold the ground, that these are waterways and and a network um, beneath the surface of things. And to listen to owls, you know, to pay attention to um, the creatures around us. To me, this is is an erosion of the intellect that we have held supreme. We are not the only species that live and breathe and love and perceive on this planet we call home. Thank you. Thank you for that tale from there. And there's other voices, Terry, that you bring in. For example, Tim DeChristopher, in a very tender conversation you have with him, you get him to talk about his paralysis in mourning, his future amidst the planet's destruction. He said, I think that it's the period of grieving that is missing from the climate movement. And this is a so instead of um, moving from a, a manual on listening is the aspect of grieving. So t- talk to that part of that conversation you had with Tim to Christopher. I really appreciate you mentioning Tim. He's a real hero of mine. Tim to Christopher in 2008. Um, he just finished his last final at the University of Utah, an economics student. He went down to the Bureau of Land Management headquarters in Salt Lake City. There was a protest there by the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. It was snowing. He went inside. He saw that there was an auction going on um, to lease oil and gas leases on public lands. He signed up. He became Bitter 70. He witnessed what was going on. And in a spontaneous act of civil disobedience, he started bidding up the um, auction, the lease sales, um, to fair market value until they realized something was terribly wrong. Um, they stopped the auction, and two years later, uh, Tim DeChristopher was sentenced for two years in a federal prison um, on two felony counts for disturbing a, an auction lease. And, you know, that's that's, in my mind, a dignified act that is part of a grand tradition in American democracy, the act of civil disobedience. And when he came out of prison, um, he realized that this wasn't just a political issue or an ecological issue, climate change, but a spiritual one. And in fact, he came um, to the Harvard Divinity School, and Tim's one of the most spiritual people I know. Mm. He's one of the most gifted orators and activists, I think, of his generation. And I just have immense respect for him. Uh, Recently, I heard him speak at the Yale Law School, standing room only, about the power of presence, of grief, of embracing the what is, not what could be. And to really, again, hold the ground in terms of of climate resistance and insistence and justice. And he, he continues to do that. And, And, you know, you bring up the point about grief. And just today, 
at the Divinity School where I now am, um, a young woman left her program in the sciences and is here wanting to come to the Harvard Divinity School where climate justice is now being embraced as a moral issue, as a spiritual issue. And I think more and more people are realizing, you know, what are the practices that we have that will enable us to grieve so that we can move through this despair into a place of action? And I keep thinking, you know, engagement is a prayer, and it does dispel um, that tendency to be paralyzed because these are, are too big of issues. But I think, you know, if we each find our place in our communities, um, however that is defined locally, nationally, globally, um, we do become something larger than ourselves, and that's where real action and results can come forward. And this off this conversation also it takes up this this geometry of activism. I really I thought this was really essential that movements have the choice either to work to move the center away from the center or support people from the margins. I thought that's another that's another tidy sort of uh, a charge a takeaway to how we can see our perspective of our our body politic. And I love that you're calling it the body politic. I think we're seeing right now an erosion of leadership in our own Congress in this country. You know, and I am always more interested in the movements on the margins, the people on the margins that are speaking truth to power. And we're certainly seeing that now in indigenous communities. Yes. um, For example. And I'll never forget being in Mexico. This was in 1994, and I was with a group of writers, and we were looking at the peril of the monarchs in Morelia, in Mexico, in the forest there. And Brighton Breitenbach, who is a writer from South Africa who was deeply engaged in the anti-apartheid movement, um, he looked at me and he said, you Americans, you have mastered the art of living with the unacceptable. It and haunts more deep, and he adds, it haunts more deeply now. I that was a quote. I'm so glad you brought him up because uh, I, I have not been thinking about him for a long time. But he was he was very um, present for. I think he even wrote editorials for mainstream readers. So um, I'm glad Absolutely. you bring him up. And, and ta- an amazing book called um, "Confessions from an Albino Terrorist." And again, it just echoes in my mind. You Americans. You have mastered the art of living with the unacceptable. I know I have. Again, it goes back to the power of denial. You know, what gets our attention? You know, what truly wakes us up to this moment in time? Um, And if climate justice doesn't do that, if the erosion of our democracy doesn't do that, if what's happening on the southern border doesn't do that, if issues of poverty and you know, economic injustices doesn't do that. What does? Not to mention gun violence. So I think this is a crucial point at, in time that we really think about um, what does leadership look like and how can we engage? What might make those in power uncomfortable um, so that the status quo can, can shift into what is being said and asked for on the margins as the margins move toward the center. Are you also working with him, with Brighton Breidenbach, and some of, because he's a train trip away from you and the creative writing program at New York University. Are you collaborating with him at all right now, Terry? I just, just to ask you know, that. I have not, I haven't seen um, Brighton for several years, but I should. You know, I read him um, often, both as a poet and uh just as someone who inspires me. So I haven't been in touch. So thank you for that reminder. So I think it's important to take note. I I want for people to help themselves to reading erosion, essays of undoing on their own. I I am not going to take away from the the power of it by uh, bringing up, uh, overstating anything in this interview. But 
it's rare that a book's dedication, it becomes a whole chapter. And you privilege us, Terry, with the complex processing of grief over your brother, Dan. I want to take this moment to thank you for this generous gift, this whole chapter about your brother, Dan, all the territory you cover with him. I loved him so deeply and continue to do so. Um, A trigger warning to your listeners. Um, A year ago, my brother Dan Dixon Tempest hung himself, and it was shattering. You know, I think anyone who has experienced suicide, death by suicide of a loved one, knows the avalanche of questions one is buried with. Um, we've had many deaths in our family from nuclear testing, as you alluded to at the beginning of this conversation, but I've never experienced um, a death that bears that kind of weight and teeth. And, you know, he was such a beautiful soul in terms of his philosophy. He was a philosopher. He studied Wittgenstein. He was a working man um, in the trenches. He worked the frack lines in uh, North Dakota, thought that he would find, you know, money and livelihood. He came home shattered and became homeless. Um, he suffered uh, decades' worth of, of depression and mental illness. And and yet, I honestly can say I don't know of a more sensitive soul. And it became too much for him. And it was tied to climate and despair. And we had those kinds of conversations. And my youngest brother... My remaining brother, Hank, had made a vow to Dan that we would see him through his cremation. Dan said to us, you know, I've been buried too long. Um, I want Sky," And that reference to Sky carried a lot of weight in that he had been working with Hawkwatch International, banding golden mm-hmm. eagles, uh-huh. uh, red-tailed hawks, peregrine falcons in the west desert of Utah, in the mountains of New Mexico, and he felt great affinity with birds of prey and their soaring nature, their power of perceptions. And I think he saw those as his gifts as well. And so the chapter does take an honest accounting of, of Dan and our relationship, um, how difficult it was, how beautiful it was, how um, complicated it was. And in the end, I do share the the beauty of of actually going through the cremation process um, till the end, where we were able to see his bones, um, recognize his bones, and and feel the the last heat of our brother's body um, together. And I'll never forget. Um, the beautiful Mr. Rabe, uh, who was Mormon in a black suit with welder's gloves, the same kinds of welder's gloves that my brothers have used, oh. Lane Pipe. And he was like a, a, a Sufi master or a, a, a Zen Buddhist, you know, as he moved the bones and, and separated the bones. And when he left Hank and I with those two trays of our, our brother's bones, I turned to Hank and said, what are you thinking? And Hank looked at me and said probably the same thing you're thinking. Are they raven's bones? Are they coyote's bones? Are they rabbit? And this from a family where, you know, as children, we spent our lives out in the desert, you know, looking, collecting, gathering bleached bones. And I, I just think it was a fitting ceremony, ritual um, of two siblings with their brother. And I'll never forget when Mr. Rabe weighed the ash after the bones had been grounded, yes. grinded, and they weighed, you know, eight pounds, two ounces, the same weight that Dan came in as a baby, the same weight as a gallon of water in the desert. I mean, those are the things, Claudia, that I couldn't have anticipated or no. expected in, or anticipated, you know, in 
in the grief of losing a beloved brother. And to me, it, it, was, it was a gift to know that if, if we can find the strength to not look away of all that breaks our hearts, you know, there is a grace that emerges um, by, as my father says, um, staring it down. And my youngest brother, Hank, really showed me that. I would not have um, agreed to go through that whole cremation process, but he did. And I wanted to be in solidarity with my two brothers, and it was a great gift. You mentioned the avalanche of questions, and that uh, that's part of the, that's another process that sort of parallels with the with erosion and undoing. And uh, with this tell about your brother, Dan, it's a manual of releasing. I, I had only wished I had read this before other uh, family members' cremation. I could have participated as fully as did Hank and you in that. And there is much more folks than what Terry is talking about that I still, I want to make sure people do turn to the book. Because there between Mr. Rabe and you, there is something very special also that's happening, and I'm going to leave that to the prospective readers to take in, and I could say savor, or I could say just to take stock of. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is award-winning author, educator, advocate, Terry Tempest Williams. We're talking about her latest book, Erosion, Essays of Undoing. And she is on a book tour, but she's calling this interview in from Cambridge right now. And I think she's going to be at the Brattleboro. Uh, that's your next uh, bookstore stop in uh, at Harvard in another couple of two days, I think, this week. And we'll hope to uh, we'll capture um, another opportunity when she comes back to the West Coast. So one thing, I'm, I mean, you've been, you've been very active on Twitter, and we're all watching uh, the the young activists. You're talking about how this book is letting young activists know that we didn't all let up on the pedal. There, there's some attention here. But you've been tracking Greta Thunberg coming over the and around the country, and you're tracking what uh, indigenous peoples the 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 violence uh, done to them in various overt and not so overt uh, ways. And you're watching also, there's a lot to watch what is happening right now with the Department of Interior, with Secretary David Bernhardt. In, and I'm, I'm going to get really, I'm going to get very graphic about this. Uh, he's in charge of the public lands, which are the main character in your book, Erosion. And arguably, uh, I guess, David Bernhardt, when Zinke was secretary, Bernhardt was really the one running this. So I, I find that somebody with his, with Bernhardt's lobbying and legal background, that his regulating our national assets that his former clients have long had their sights on, it's not so much the fox guarding the chicken coop. You know, Terry, it feels more like Jeffrey Epstein running a girls can code camp. Wow. I, I, I'm speechless. You know, I, David Barnhart is so smart and stealth and connected and is just walking this knife edge of what's legal, what isn't. You know, I was talking to Senator Tom Udall from New Mexico, whom I have such deep respect for, and he said, yes. you know, the Senate subcommittees on natural resources, you know, they are sending letter after letter after letter saying there is a conflict of interest here, whether it's water in California, whether it's, as you say, the public land, 640 million acres of them, whether it's moving the BLM office to Grand Junction, Colorado, um, so that it's out of Washington, D.C.'s point of view or purview. I mean, it's, you know, whether it's gutting Bears Ears National Monument, as Trump did by an executive order in 2017, by 85%, which was, you know, such a betrayal, again, to the Native people who said these are sacred lands to us, the Hopi, the Navajo, the Zuni, Ute, Mountain Ute uh, nations. I, I mean, I could just go on and on and on. It is relentless. The undoing of the Endangered Species Act, um, the undoing of, of so many of our regulations, you know, 80-plus 
regulations that have been removed. Where are we? And, you know, how do we put pressure on someone like Bernhardt? Um, there was just an article in the Washington Post on this issue. And it's terrifying because so many of the erosive, corrosive acts that are being done to these federal acts, um, it's going to take decades to get them back. And in the process, we're going to lose land, we're going to lose species, and we're going to lose um, health protections for our children, whether it's toxins or water or clean air. So you're exactly right to bring this up. And um, again, it's a, another example of this administration's uh, erosion of the open space of democracy, literally and figuratively. And I tried, Terry, to sort of plat the time frame. I mean, this revolving door, it's obscene that three months, I think, only between him collecting a $20,000 per month retainer to becoming deputy secretary of the Department of Interior. That, that's erosion in a, uh, it, it is as violent as, as anyone's word choice could be. And I, I wanted to bring you talk, the sage grouse is a very lovely creature that you present to us in its natural, its its native habitat, which is under attack as the rescinding of the endangered species going on. And it's, He's making a move on that. I want to mention that there's the the Bureau of Land Management under his control is it's relocating oddly, but not but like you said, he's very dang, he's very very uh, deliberate here. He's moving those employees of Bureau of Land Management from D.C. to Grand Junction, and not just yeah. to Grand Junction, but it's inside a Chevron building. That's right. You know, Grand Junction is about 90 minutes, 80 minutes from where we live in Castle Valley. And, you know, these are stealth moves. It's it's really marching toward the privatization of our public lands, which, you know, Orrin Hatch, I dare say, Senator Romney now in Utah, certainly our governor, and so many of the Western um, delegation, not someone like Udall, you know, and many of the Democratic uh, senators are against the privatization of public lands. But boy, the Republicans, this is what they want. And it's one step closer to making that happen. And I, the other part that I want, or there's two things I want for people to keep track of, too, is that David Bernhardt, in the, there's an, another coverage in the New York Times yesterday, I th I'm not sure if, I think if you tweeted about it, too, but that he is using an unorthodox, I would say, uh, unethical approach to, he's directly approaching his ethics legal counsel at the Department of Interior. And that's a, it's a power sort of leveraging that is untoward in a bureaucracy like the Department of Interior. It's usually done indirectly where you're, you're right. running your approach by someone else who goes to those ethics counsel, but his, uh, David Bernhardt is going directly to them. That's, that's one. And the other is the acting deputy, Secretary Catherine McGregor. She's a very young, she's, I think she's getting schooled in how all this works. I think she has a very long future ahead of her to take her fossil fuel uh, portfolio into public policy for a couple of generations. So I'm, I want people to keep track of those things. Is there something else I'm leaving out here, Terry? Well, you know, I also have to say I find great hope in the people who have stayed in the federal agencies and her working behind the scenes to make sure that that things are being reported, that people do know what's happening. And, you know, just Saturday I was in Washington, D.C., giving a reading at Politics and Prose Bookstore, and two magnificent employees of the Department of Interior were there. Oh. And they bought a book, and they said, would you sign this to someone that matters to us? And I said, of course. And what is that person's name? And they said... David Bernhardt. Oh, of course. <laughs> right. I wanted and, to send Catherine McGregor a copy, and I still can do that, Terry. I've, I've ordered a couple of the books. Just, yes, that's well, perfect. I it, and I said, I don't know what to say. You know, I said, thank you. And I said, I really don't know what to say. And this, they were in charge of communication. And this woman said, I do. She said, please just say, for you, Secretary Bernhardt, and sign it, boom. 
you know, <gasps> and that's what I did. And I just, you know, it was such a wonderful um, coyote move of two employees that care. And I run into, you know, scientists and federal agency workers that are, you know, working in the offices, that are working in state offices, working on the ground and doing the ground truthing. And we will, and I, I hope I'm not creating profanity on the radio, but I just think of Ed Abbey when he said, we will outlive the bastards, and we will. And we have to vote, we have to act, and we have to organize, and I think we do it locally and we do it nationally. And I do think that there is so much that we can do to keep the open space of democracy open. And as raw and dark at times that I felt erosion could be as I was writing these essays, I think it's also as bright because our grief is a manifestation of our love. And, you know, there are those days where I think, can I get up out of bed? You know, I I feel um, so disparaging. But then I'm aware that in those moments, it's the limits of my own imagination. And imaginations shared create collaboration. In collaboration, we create community. And I really believe, Claudia, in community, anything is possible. And I think we're seeing that. Speaking of communities, then, when I recently had the the pleasure of seeing Angelo Baca, who introduced, who brought you to my attention. He's a Native American documentary filmmaker. My listeners have heard him a couple of times. And one, what he has, he has faith in, that's a, I, I guess that's chosen with intention there, is the measure of the power of white Mormon women. And you've been on both sides of that the inside and outside of that community. Have you, what can you see that role being in terms of what you're talking about, activation and the um, exceeding the limits of one's imagination in turning around this erosion process? Well, I love Angelo Baca. You know, he's a great leader um, of his generation. He's an artist. He's an activist. He's wise. I love his mother, Ida Yellowman. Yes. Um, she is a nurse, and she's been taking care for decades of Navajo Diné uranium workers um, sick with cancer, dying of cancer. We've had endless conversations uh, about the Mormon community. There's so much about my people, the Mormon community, my family that I love and admire. And that is rooted in community and um, personal revelation. There's much that I abhor um, in terms of racism, and I think racism is a compilation of bad stories, and we're seeing that in what I call frontier Mormons in place like San Juan County. You know, what can a privileged white woman like myself do? We can be good allies. We can listen. And I think we can also own our own white supremacy, our own place of privilege. And, you know, I think one of the most difficult essays in the book for me was the other elements inside Boom, where I talk about, you know, I am not on the outside, but inside Boom. You know, these are my people. This is me. And we have to look in the mirror and face the violent histories that are ours. And to be able to stand in solidarity you know, with Angelo Baca, with Willie Gray Eyes, with Ida Yellowman, you know, with Evangie Gray, with Cynthia Wilson, you know, um, fellow Utahns, citizens, Native, non-Native alike, you know, there is so much that binds us together. And I think that's what we can do. There's the Utah Rural Project that is doing such powerful work with Native people and non-Native people in terms of organizing, getting the vote out, making sure that every Indigenous household has an address so that they can legitimately vote. Um, This kind of organization among the tribal members with the leadership that you're talking about defeated Proposition 10, which was basically a segregation bill. 
um, fostered by, I have to say, the Mormons in San Juan County in Blanding, who said, we don't want a unified San Juan County, we want a white Mormon county and an Indian county. It was a segregationist bill, and it lost. And I think, again, this is how we keep the open space of democracy open, by being good allies with our indigenous brothers and sisters, by speaking up about racism within our own communities and within ourselves. Um, It's not easy, but I think it is absolutely imperative. Again, Brighton, Brighton, Bach, you Americans, you have mastered the art of living with the unacceptable. There are Native families in the state of Utah that have no running water, and that is intentional. That can no longer stand. And I just find that in the state of Utah right now, I have never felt more hopeful in the midst of, of real concerns because people are paying attention and our eyes are open. And again, engagement is a prayer. Terry, I know there's more that we could talk about. I think I'll leave it to the listeners to have a listen, have a read on the manual of listening, the manual of of developing, being true to our theology, the, the manual of of activation. I want to thank you. It's been such a pleasure having you on Ask a Leader today. I feel like I've made a new friend, Claudia. Thank you so much, and thank you for bringing my voice to the place where I was born. Thank you for bringing it to us. My guest was author Terry Tempest Williams talking about her latest book, Erosion, Essays of Undoing, published by Sarah Creighton Books, Farr, Strauss, and Giroux, and it's available at your favorite independent book dealer. Her websites have updates on when she'll be back on the West Coast, I believe in San Francisco. I do want to take a quick moment to announce tomorrow, if anybody's up in the Bay Area, you can go over to Senator Dianne Feinstein's office tomorrow, November 13th at noon. There's a rally. The National Voting Rights Task Force is urging her to advocate for a $600 million election security funding with accountability language and push for guidelines proposed in the SAFE Act. So um, that's my wrap. I'll be circling back later this season of giving with some other literary wonders that you'll be interested in sharing. But for the next week, I'll have on Stephanie Hammerwald, executive director and co-founder of Pacific Rantry Career Services, assisting women mainly in getting hired after their incarceration. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs>